Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Good morning. My name is Melissa Leggy. I'm a third-year student here at, the, at Yale Law School and the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and I am thrilled to welcome to the studio this morning Deborah Goldberg. Uh, Deborah is uh, the managing attorney at Earth Justice's Northeast Regional Office, where she supervises and conducts legal advocacy and litigation related to global warming and environmental health. Uh, prior to that, Deborah was Democracy Program Director at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, where she worked on issues of electoral and campaign finance reform. And prior to that, she was an environmental litigator in private practice for many years. Uh, Deborah graduated from Harvard Law, which we won't hold against her, and uh, also holds a PhD in philosophy and, and taught ethics prior to going to law school. So welcome to the studio, Deborah. Thank you for having me. Um, so. We just wanted to talk to you today about um, your career as an environmental litigator. And um, my first question to you is, um, knowing that you have a PhD in philosophy, what, what caused you to leave the field of academia and teaching ethics and pursue a career in the law? Well, I really think that I got into philosophy out of concern about ethics and moral problems that we were facing. And as I started to teach, which I enjoyed very much, I realized that I wanted to be more in the trenches. So I consulted with the brother of one of my philosophy professors who happened to be the head of the Capital Punishment Project at the ACLU at the time. And I said, you're not a lawyer. Um, do I have to be a lawyer in order to do this? And he said, go to law school. <laughs> so I went to law school. <laughs> and, and have been here ever since. And um, so, so what brought you to environmental law? As well, I actually got into environmental law entirely by accident. Um, I was clerking for a couple of years after um, law school, and I was ready to settle down somewhere. The only starting positions that were open in the public interest world, which is where I had assumed I would be going, were one-year positions. And I decided that I would Try, try out a small environmental boutique um, that budgeted about 15 to 20 percent of its time for pro bono work and try and do the work that I was really interested in principally at that time, which was mostly um, women's rights and reproductive rights issues. Um, and then I would, my paying clients uh, would be environmental clients. So I went to this firm, which specialized in environmental law, and I learned environmental law on the job while I did the, the work that, that was really the core of my passion at the time on a pro bono basis. And now you do mostly environmental law um, for environmental uh, for Earth Justice, which mm -hmm. is the uh, nation's largest environmental law organization. And I'm wondering, how does your work now differ from your work that you did in private practice, or, or are they quite similar? They're, they're different. Um, there's some similarities, but for the most part, when I was in private practice, um, I was doing cases that were CERCLA cases, dealing with hazardous waste cleanups. Uh, we did some historic preservation work, uh, uh, which was often done on a pro bono basis also, which is a little bit closer to what I do right now. Um, but um, And we did some uh, environmental review work, um, typically for um, developers who were um, going to build, build big projects in the city of New York. So I'm now doing a lot of NEPA work. Um, that's, so that work 
is very similar, but um, I'm taking on clients that I used to represent um, when I was in private practice. I did spend a couple of years at a big law firm um, when the little boutique closed down. And when I was there, I was representing oil companies. And now I'm doing my best to um, shut them down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how does that feel to have been on both sides? Well, I think it's interesting. Um, the work that I was doing on behalf of this particular client really didn't relate to their oil business. It was, um, it was again, Superfund work because they had purchased land that turned out to be contaminated and, and they were responsible for cleaning up. Um, but I was also doing some just uh, general litigation when I was at the big firm um, for those clients, um, toxic tort litigation. And I really wasn't completely comfortable defending the big um, corporate company, the big corporate firms against um, small individuals who had been harmed. Even in situations where I was quite convinced that my client was not an issue and we were successful in having them, you know, voluntarily dismissed from a case, um, I didn't go to law school to be defending corporate America. I went to law school to make a difference in the world, and so I was I was ready to leave after a couple of years there. And and now at Earth Justice, do you feel like you've found the spot where you're making a difference in the world? I do. Um, I, Yours Justice is the first job I've had where the my core passion, which changed over time uh, and has now very much centered in the environment, um, is completely aligned with the work that I do every day. And it is an incredible um, honor and um, privilege, honestly, to work with, with Earth Justice. And it, it's. I, I consider myself extremely lucky to be able to go in every day to do something I care about so deeply. What kind of um, issues are you working on now that are sort of the most core to your um, to your passion for the environmental justice movement? Well, the issues that I'm working on most directly, my own case law, um, is focusing very much on some of the infrastructure, the big infrastructure that is going to drive additional um, gas development in the Northeast region. Um, in particular, we're on our way right now to the D.C. Circuit on an appeal of a decision by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to permit a large LNG, liquid natural gas, export facility in Cove Point, Maryland. And we've challenged the environmental review that was conducted for failure to examine what the upstream impacts are going to be in the gas fields that are going to supply this facility, and also failure to do a life cycle greenhouse gas analysis of the facility, its upstream impacts, and its downstream impacts where it's burned overseas. It seems to me like there's been a lot of focus on fracking. I know you've been very involved mm -hmm. in work related to, to supporting local governments and, and their ability to regulate or ban fracking in their communities. Um, do you think that this uh, focus on the downstream infrastructure is sort of the next wave of, of work to be done to address uh, the effects of natural gas? Yes, I think that... Um the, the, the community, particularly in New York, that was successful in, in keeping fracking out um, recognizes fully that they're still benefiting from fracking in other states by, because the gas is being used in New York. And there is a 
very substantial community of folks who are trying to move beyond fossil fuels altogether and work toward clean energy. And those folks are both fighting a lot of the gas infrastructure in an effort not to dig us into 100 years of reliance on uh, natural gas as a, as a power source, but also working affirmatively to create opportunities for clean energy in their communities. So another case that, that my office was involved in recently that um, came to a successful conclusion just last week, I think, um, was an effort to fight the repowering of an outdated, unnecessary coal-fired power plant as a gas-fired power plant that could also burn coal when it chose to do so, when in our view, all they really need to do is transmission upgrades in order to meet the reliability concerns of the area. And in the, in the end, fortunately, the Public Service Commission of New York agreed and turned down the repowering proposal and will go forward with the transmission upgrades. And in the meantime, in that very same county, they are working very hard on a project called Solarize Tompkins um, to help bring um, community solar and other solar projects um, as alternatives to the fossil fuels. Well, congratulations on that victory. That's very exciting. Um, also going on in the courts right now, we know the uh, the Supreme Court recently denied this, the or granted the stay on uh, the clean power plan going into effect. And I'm wondering how um, that is affecting uh, the work that you're doing in your office right now. Is it affecting it at all? It's affecting it to some extent um, because we are watching very carefully a bill in Pennsylvania right now um, that would not only undermine the ability to implement new fracking regulations, but also it impair the ability of the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection to implement its clean power plan. Um, because of the stay, the deadlines that were in, the, in that bill um, may no longer be as um, problematic as we had originally thought, but we do need to keep an eye on it. And of course, we do have a, a, a coal program at Earth Justice um, with its uh, managing attorney in Philadelphia. And they are, they're watching what's going on very carefully, but obviously the, the, the stay on the clean power plant doesn't stay us. And so we are continuing our efforts uh, to shut down coal-fired power plants um, regardless of the, of the stay on the clean power plant. And it seems like there have been many successful efforts over the past several years, even before the Obama administration entered into the fray with the Clean Power Plan. Uh, so, so it seems like that work goes on unchecked. That work goes on unchecked and is, you know, now um, also complemented by a large new clean energy program that we've been developing. Um, we want to make sure that as we shut down these clean, these coal-fired power plants that what's put in their place utilizes clean energy to the maximum extent possible. Also, obviously, energy efficiency, demand response, the various types of um, power sources that are both uh, inexpensive and uh, carbon-free. That's fantastic. And of course, we had uh, Abby Dillon in here in the studio in the fall to do another podcast. So loyal uh, podcast listeners will remember <laughs> that one. Um, <laughs> well, I, I want to turn briefly. I know we have limited time, but I, kn I know that one of the things you wanted to talk about today while you're at Yale is environmental justice lawyering. And um, I know that, that that's something you were very excited about talking to students about. And I'm wondering you know, if you could tell us what is environmental justice lawyering and, and why is it important? Uh, well, 
When I think of environmental justice lawyering, what I think about are lawyers who help uh, protect overburdened communities um, and that do so from the perspective of, the, of communities on the ground, answering directly to them and having them drive the agenda. And I don't think that we can really hold ourselves out at Earth Justice as environmental justice lawyers in that sense. Um, we do still do um, very, uh, for the most part, high impact uh, law reform litigation. Um, we do so often on behalf of communities of color and, and low-income communities, but um, I think it would be misleading to say that we are environmental justice lawyers in, in the sense that I first described. We are very eager, however, to, to talk to the students here at Yale about the work that we do do on behalf of communities that are sometimes known as environmental justice communities, the communities that are typically communities of color and low-income communities that um, bear an un fair share of environmental burdens. And we are now doing a wide range of litigation on behalf of these communities as they are our clients, um, along sometimes together with other organizations, sometimes on their own, in an effort to um, make sure that the, the burdens of uh, toxic pollution and other types of environmental problems don't fall disproportionately on the people who can, um, are least able to resist them. You mentioned that this is a, an initiative at, at Earth Justice that's been going uh, in in recent years. Uh, what was the organizational process like of, of coming to uh, determine that this was a priority for the work, especially in your office, um, and and how how did that kind of realization come to pass? Well, I think that Earth, Earth Justice has been doing the work from, on behalf of these communities for a very long time. Um, we've represented um, uh, Native American nations and tribes, um, um, pr protecting their fishing rights, um, and also uh, Alaska Natives um, with some of the issues that are affecting the Arctic. Um, and we've been increasingly getting involved in issues that relate to um, urban areas and sometimes the port areas, uh, which are disproportionately, the residents are disproportionately um, uh, low income and communities of color. And I think that, you know, we were watching this work and uh, and beginning to recognize that it might be more effective if we were uh, conceived of as a body of work and not just sort of as independent cases that we would take on on a regional basis. We also realized that if the environmental movement is going to be successful over time and we're going to really win these enormous battles that we are facing, then we really need to bring every community um, in to um, and, and make them part of our fight and um, address the issues that are most significant to them so that we can um, really work collaboratively with them. So I think that our current executive director felt this very powerfully, and um, we have initiated an effort at um, Earth Justice now to diversify um, the groups that we work with, the nature of our programs, and the staff with which we do that work. I know sometimes environmental justice work can be challenging um, legally because you know we don't have an environmental justice act like we have the Clean Air Act. We don't have a major statute that provides um, legal standards or, or redress for citizens. What what have you found in your work and, and your colleagues found to be the most promising legal avenues for pursuing environmental justice and for getting um, 
clean air and and clean water to the communities that need it most. Well, there are occasion there are some um, strategies that go at this issue directly. Um, for example, in New York, there the Department of Environmental Conservation actually has an environmental justice policy, and they are supposed to do um, public participation and outreach to communities that they have identified as environmental justice communities. In one of our cases up in Albany, where we are combating a crude by rail transfer station, um, the department violated its own policy in approving or proposing to approve um, expansions of that facility. And so we've gone in to try and ensure that the department complies with its own rules. Um, we also have brought recently a number of administrative complaints under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which in fact does apply, including to the Environmental Protection Agency, and, and requires that they consider complaints for the disproportionate impact of polluting facilities on communities of color and low-income communities. So we have a number of cases right now pending that are administrative complaints, um, and one um, actual judicial complaint in the, where we have pulled together a number of these complaints that languished for more than 10 years without getting attention in an effort to get EPA to take these complaints seriously. You know, barring those types of um, litigation hooks, um, we use the standard rules that we can find and, and, and federal statutes. So we have um, in Albany, and along with our state complaints, um, and where we can uh, invoke the environmental justice policy as part of an environmental review program, we also have a Clean Air Act suit. And um, we have uh, other uh, uh, complaints and litigation, lawsuits going on across the country under the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act um, that simply, uh, where we simply use the tools that those statutes provide to assist communities that are particularly um, impacted by the environmental problems in their area. Well, I know, I know that um, you all are doing fantastic work on this, and um, I'm I'm very excited that, to hear about it uh, at the talk later today. Um, I, I wanted to, to close by asking uh, you for some advice um, for those of us who are young people wanting to go into environmental law. Um, what, what kind of, uh, what should we be looking to do when we graduate and, and how should we be preparing ourselves for this field? Well, it's a very exciting field to be in right now. and. Um, I think what I would say is obviously it would be wonderful to have Yale students applying to Earth Justice. Um, we do have some openings, um, and we will, I'm sure, continue to have some openings, and we do have them available to people who are coming out of law school. Um, and we also occasionally have them for more, more uh, experienced lawyers who may have um, gone off to pay off some loans for a few years and decided to come back. Um, what I would say most is that keep your eye on the prize. Um, not everybody is going to find a public interest environmental law job straight out of law school. They're pretty competitive. Um, but, you know, I didn't get to where I came um, directly either. And um, you can learn a lot at a law firm. You can get great litigation experience. If you decide to go that route, what you need to remember is that you should not live up to your means. Um, take that huge, ridiculous salary that you're <laughs> going to get and pay off your loans so that you can get out and you can do what you really care about. And in the meantime, you should take on whatever pro bono projects you can. 
because it will be important to establish um, your credibility um, in many organizations. They will look for that proof. We look for proof that somebody's committed to what we do going forward. You don't have to have environmental background per se if you want to come work at Earth Justice, but if you've done racial justice work or economic justice work um, and have come to realize the intersection of the environment and those issues and would like to work on that going forward, that's good enough for us. Um, but in some organizations, they will look for more, and so you want to make sure that you have a record of commitment to what you want to do in the future. Well, that sounds good to me. I mean, I'll, I'll work on that. <laughs> um, thank you for that advice. And, and take note, uh, graduating law students, about the, the job openings there. Um, <laughs> the last question I wanted to ask is just, um, what do you find most exciting about your work and about uh, working in the field of environmental litigation, sort of looking forward? Like, what, what do you think of as... Uh, the, the next horizon of this work uh, that's giving you hope for the future? Well, I think the, the, the uh, work that's giving me the most hope is, a lot, is the clean energy work. And particularly, it's exciting to watch what's happening with distributed energy. Um, we had a, a great success in Maryland passing um, a new state statute that will enable people in Maryland to um, really move forward on distributed solar projects. And you know, we I'm very hopeful that we will beat back some of the efforts of the of the uh, the fossil fuel industry to make it difficult to um, move forward on this. But um, I think that that is the wave of the future. I think that. Um, distributed energy will actually serve not only our interest in uh, a clean environment, but also in promoting more democratic governance. Um, and um, that unites, you know, the, the interest that I've had in in uh, democrat democracy and and the environment all at one time. Well, that sounds very exciting to me. Well, um, hopefully that, that comes to pass for more states than just Maryland. It's exciting to be able to look to Maryland as an example, um, and, and hopefully we'll learn some lessons for the future. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're very excited uh, and, and grateful to you for, for spending a few minutes with us this morning, um, and, and have a wonderful time here at Yale. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu/sustainablefood.